0: Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne, today's western Germany. That is over two thousand years old. But until became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that can represent European history like a microcosm. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows. In the last episode, we dealt with a Frankish divorce drama with world historical implications, with the Archbishop of Cologne, Gunther, as one of the main actors. This episode, however, we are looking at the Vikings who, well, visited the Rhineland at the end of the 9th century. Yes, without further ado, that's the topic of the episode. On to the intro. The Vikings in the Rhineland? Hmm, in fact, many people are not so aware of that. Those who think of the Vikings and their raids tend to associate them with other regions. First and foremost, of course, England, where the raid on the monastery Lindisfarne in 793 ushered into the Viking Age there. Or Paris, which was sacked several times by the Vikings and led to the end of the Carolingian dynasty in the Western Frankish Empire. Or even areas like Iceland, Russia, Ukraine or even North America. That is where the paths of the Vikings led. That the focus is really rather on these regions and not on the Rhineland or Cologne is obvious. Until today one has found almost hardly any signs from the Vikings in the Rhineland, although they were clearly here. Second, the Viking invasion here in the late 9th century in Cologne and the Rhineland was also just that, an invasion. Quite different from England, Iceland, Greenland, Normandy, Russia, Ukraine or Sicily, where the Vikings settled permanently and thus lent their name to an entire era in these regions. In the Rhineland, on the other hand, the men and sometimes women from the far north of Europe were only passing through. Another reason could additionally be that the historical sources from that time in the Frankish world named these pirates from Scandinavia that we know today as Vikings quite differently. For example, they called them Normans, Danes, Norwegians, pirates, or simply as pagans, or even as devilish heathens. And not as Vikings, which was really the proper name of these pirates from Scandinavia. Even nowadays, in the German-speaking world, people usually speak of the Normans. So, the men or people from the north. But that would be an unfair attribution. For most of these Normans lived as simple farmers in Scandinavia only a small percentage of them went on raids. Therefore, it would be more correct to speak here of Vikings. Viking is the proper name of these seafaring robbers and simply means the one who goes on a raid. Why did Vikings go on raids? In pop culture, the Vikings have often been portrayed as a mysterious people from the north of Europe who completely unexpectedly began to invade the then-known world that no one has ever seen them before. But that's not quite true. In areas often difficult to access by land, the people of Scandinavia had perfected shipbuilding over the centuries. Their ships were light enough to take them anywhere. They had enough room, but at the same time were shallow enough to travel shallow coastal waters or rivers. Then their ships were also built to be seaworthy. In the Frankish Empire, in turn, the knowledge of how to build ships suitable for the high seas had been lost. There, they usually used only coastal barges with the appearances of shoeboxes which were slow and difficult to steer. But these were not suitable for the high seas. So there was never a chance to race like a Frankish army and just sail to Scandinavia to beat the heck out of these pagans or vikings. With the high seas and navigation on open water, however, the people from Scandinavia were well known. They, as well as the Frisians living on the North Sea coast of what is now Germany and the Netherlands, were the long-distance traders of the early Middle Ages and thus well-known in the Frankish Empire, as well as in Cologne itself. Already in the times of the Merovingians, Scandinavians traveled through Central Europe as traders. So, like the wild, mystical pagans out of nowhere, the Vikings didn't come into the rest of Europe now, here in the 9th century. What only changed was how this part of the world north of the Frankish Empire suddenly interacted with the rest of the then known world in the south of it. So why did the Vikings actually go on raids? Well, there are many theories that come to mind that might have been the cause. Overpopulation, insufficient arable land, or a mixture of both or other factors, which led to the fact that there was simply not enough arable land or settlement area available in Scandinavia for future generations. Then the first kingdoms also arose in Scandinavia, which means that power became increasingly centralized there as well. For young and ambitious freemen, usually second or third born, there were therefore often hardly any prospects in their homeland. According to the tradition, they could inherit nothing. Only the oldest son could. They could help the eldest brother as a property-less assistance, but that was not what satisfied everyone. It was just as impossible to find new land at home, because there simply wasn't any left or maybe now even a king claimed, all the land in the region for himself and his clan. When there were no more prospects at home, the only option for a young Scandinavian was often to look into the distance. But still, we are talking about a fraction of the Scandinavians who decided to go around the world looting and murdering. However, what was somewhat true about the many stereotypes that existed about the Vikings who went out to raid was the brutality and modus operandi described about them in all the Christian sources. Since the Vikings were still pagans in the beginning of the Viking era and believed in their Germanic pagan gods and goddesses like Odin, Thor and Freya, the latter two are the reason why we call it Thursday and Friday, they did not fear death in battle. On the contrary, many even wanted to die in battle if necessary. In their belief, whoever fell in a battle was guaranteed a place in the Hall of Odin, also known as Valhalla. It's not for me to belittle or ridicule the beliefs of religions, but Valhalla already had, let's say, an interesting idea of the afterlife. Also in Valhalla, similar to the heaven of the Abrahamic religions, there was enough food, no worries and no misery. Well, not so much misery, so to speak. Because Father Odin always challenged the warriors gathered in his hall to slaughter each other in single combat during the day. When the slaughter was over in the late afternoon, he revived the dead who were already living in the afterlife, and the day was rounded off with a great feast, with meat and beer which was served by the Valkyries. They celebrated every evening a big party. The next day the cycle started all over again. Odin did all this because at some point the battle for the survival of the world would come and he wanted to gather the bravest and toughest warriors at his court for that. For this reason, the Vikings fought extremely daredevil and foolhardy. Places like churches and monasteries were therefore not taboo for them as pagans. On the contrary, I have often described here how richly endowed and wealthy the churches and monasteries were. This way, churches and monasteries were a desired target for the Vikings. So it is not surprising that they, the Vikings, were portrayed as particularly negative and cruel, especially in the written Christian sources. For who wrote the yearbooks and chronicles of that time again? Exactly the monks in the monasteries who were able to read and write. The later abbot Regino of Prüm alone, whose historiography is still an important source of this time, was twice, personally, the victim of a Viking raid during his lifetime. Both times, he only narrowly escaped death. So it is understandable that the monk didn't give such a good account on the Vikings, and who could blame him? But now, let's turn to the work of the Vikings in the Rhineland. Why did they come to the Rhineland at all? Places near the coast like at the North Sea or in England were much closer for them, weren't they? Well, even though the Vikings were certainly brave and feared warriors who could sometimes win entire field battles against regular Christian or Frankish armies, Their philosophy of looting and stealing was quite simple. Always attack where there is political instability at the moment. Roughly speaking, plunder areas with the lowest chance of resistance. As I said, from time immemorial, Scandinavian merchants had traveled throughout the then-known world bringing home the news. Thus, they learned that monasteries like the one on the small island of Linnes Farm in England were almost unguarded. The monks living there simply did not expect attacks there in that remote area, especially not from the sea. England in the late 8th and early 9th century was fragmented into several Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and thus rather weak politically. The Frankish Empire at the same time under Charles the Great and then under his son Louis the Pious in turn had built numerous fortresses and garrisons on the coast to effectively prevent the Vikings from raiding into their realm. But since you surely heard the last episode about the double Frankish divorce drama, you know what happened then. The Frankish Empire broke up into several parts under Charles the Great's grandsons. All of them fought against each other. The whole fragmented empire was in a state of civil war. This destabilized the empire not only internally but also externally. Much like in the Roman Empire at times of civil wars, troops were now withdrawn from the peripheries of the Frankish dominion. The soldiers in these fortresses and garrisons on the coasts were needed for the Frankish civil wars. The fact that in this process the Frankish Empire disintegrated into several parts was also not ideal for an effective defense against the Vikings. Thus the way was free for the Vikings to simply invade inland Europe via the rivers in the middle of the 9th century, like Paris in the Western Frankish Empire, which was sacked several times starting in 845. The Vikings had simply sailed along the river Seine without much resistance, until they reached the city. The West Frankish king was not able to cope with the Viking attacks. Most of the time he could only motivate the Vikings to leave with high ransoms after they had already plundered Paris, which of course showed the Vikings to do this again and again. And not only in the Western Frankish Empire, All of Charles the Great's heirs buckled before those barbarians and savages from the north. This, of course, stuck with the common people and local and regional nobility of the Frankish kingdoms and led to a huge collapse of royal Carolingian authority everywhere. This was also the case in the Rhineland at the end of the ninth century. When in England King Alfred, the great ruler of Wessex and later king of all Anglo-Saxons, successfully accomplished the defense against the attacks of the Vikings for the time being, the Vikings changed their target of attack. Already in the year 863, the Vikings had completely destroyed the once flourishing Frisian trading town of Dorestad, which was an important Carolingian base on the North Sea coast. After the town had already been plundered countless times. In 879, a large Viking army, coming from the mouth of the Schelde River, started its raids into the Rhineland. They conquered the nearby cities of Utrecht and Nijmegen in 880 and also set up their winter camps there. Nijmegen may already be familiar to some loyal, long time listeners of this podcast. It was the city of the Germanic Batavians, and a Roman colony, 900 years before. Nijmegen is located on the river Waal and Utrecht on the river Leck. Don't these two rivers' names mean anything to you? Well, the matter is actually quite simple. De facto both rivers are the Rhine River. You know, the river that flows through Cologne, just in case you missed it. This is because the Rhine forms a delta with the River Maas shortly before it flows into the North Sea. Shortly before that, the Rhine splits into a northern and southern stream, just that, Val and Leck. You know what I'm talking about, I hope. Once the Vikings had a foothold there at Val and Leck, the way to Cologne was as good as clear. They now had access to the water highway to Cologne. The Rhine. Oh dear. But before we continue, here's something from some friends of the show. Hi, my name is Kaylin and I'm the host of a new podcast called Tea Time Thoughts. Do you ever wish you could learn more about history, books, music, art and culture, but you just don't know where to start? I totally feel your pain. Learning about all these things can be so overwhelming. Well, I want to change all of that for you. In my podcast, Tea Time Thoughts, I'll show you just how fun it all can be. In the time it takes to have a cup of tea, I'm going to teach you everything from the French Revolution to the Black Plague, Mozart to Broadway musicals, Da Vinci to Robert Frost, Ancient Egypt to Queen Elizabeth II, and more. You can stream Tea Time Thoughts wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So, what are you waiting for? Put the kettle on and listen to Tea Time Thoughts today. Who were these Vikings who attacked the Rhineland from the year 880? Much of the Viking history is often fluidly connected with sagas and legends. This is often because only later Scandinavian sources spoke about the countrymen and countrywomen involved. Vikings known in popular culture nowadays, such as Ragnar Lofbrog, Ivar the Boneless, Rollo, Floki, and Lagatha, are all characters from saga stories that were written later but definitely have their true historical core. The leader of the Vikings, who now moved their base permanently to Friesland on the today's Dutch North Sea coast, was a man named Godefried or Gottfried depending on whether one prefers the Scandinavian or German pronunciation of his name. Godefried was a Danish Viking who actually wanted to plunder England or even the Western Frankish Empire in the year 879. And why not? Paris had already been successfully plundered several times, but in England Alfred the Great was king and fought successfully against Viking raids for the time being and the ruler in the western Frankish Empire, Charles III, was now also visibly resisting. So Godefried and his army, together with another Viking prince named Sigifried, turned to Friesland, as mentioned before, which laid in the eastern Frankish Empire. From there, Godefried set out with his ships and army from 880 onwards. There must have been hundreds of long ships, which could be up to 30 meters long, and on which there was room for up to 100 Vikings, which now sailed upstream along the Rhine. Let us take a look at the sources. Here, the already known Fulda annals of the Fulda monastery serve us as help. Well, a little bit, because all it says is, quote, "They set fire to the cities of Cologne and Bonn." And their churches and buildings. The strange thing is, surely such a pillaging must be somehow archaeologically tangible, similar to the one that happened in 355 when Roman Cologne was sacked by the Franks. I myself have been able to see destroyed Roman houses and wells in the excavation zone under Cologne Cathedral that fell victim to that year of 355. Archaeologically, the plundering of Cologne by the Vikings can hardly be proven, if at all. The foundation walls of the old cathedral, which was only young at the time, showed no traces of fire or destruction. The same applies also to the already 500 years old church St. Gerion, which still lay outside the city wall and thus completely freely actually stood to the looting. Also about the rest of the city, we learn little or nothing. Strange, this still puzzles historical researchers today. Did the historians of that time exaggerate the extent of the destruction in their accounts? Was the destruction not so bad after all? Whereas other cities such as Dorestadt, once a thriving Frisian city and important trading partner for Cologne and directly connected by the Rhine with the city, had just been completely destroyed by the Vikings, it stopped existing and had never been rebuilt. So severe was its destruction by the Vikings. Therefore, as so often in this time, we can only say, we simply do not know what really happened. In the region around Cologne, traces of the Viking invasion of that year can only be found in today's Duisburg, a city north of Cologne. Even in the dense and probably not to the Rhine-side fortified harbor district of Cologne, which we have explored two episodes earlier, such a destruction from this time is not archaeologically proven. This densely built quarter should have gone up in flames quickly in the event of an attack. But it didn't happen, or rather, there was no evidence of it until now. And yet, the Vikings under the leaders Godefried and Sigifried must have plundered the city. For a few years later, the Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann I, who was in office at the time, wrote to the Pope in Rome that Cologne needed new relics for its churches as many had been looted or destroyed by the Viking invasion. Probably at least the monasteries and associated church buildings of St. Ursula and St. Cecilia went up in flames. At least that is how it is assumed in the sources, but as said, archaeologically the historical reports are not tangible. After the Sack of Cologne, the Vikings continued up the Rhine River and also into the tributary river Moselle, where they sacked the former Roman residential city of Trier the following year in 882. Also in that year, the monastery of Prymus was plundered by the Vikings. Here, the Benedictine monk Regino, the later abbot of the monastery, reported about the Viking raids in his chronicles. Let's hear what Regino wrote about the raid of the Vikings in his monastery, about the Vikings who were probably the same ones who planted Cologne one year before. Quote, but when the Normans saw this peasant folk, not both unarmed and rather stripped of all warfare, they fall upon them with clamour and cut them down with such slaughter that unreasonable cattle, not men, seem to be slaughtered. End quote. This is just one example that painted the image about the Vikings and their brutality. The selection of the targets of the raids by the Vikings show that the Vikings used the existing Roman road network in addition to a Rhine that still existed in some kind of extent. But wait a minute, you will say. You keep mentioning that the Roman city wall in Cologne still existed. That's true, my dear friend, but what we do not know is what condition the wall was in at that time. It was still standing and would remain standing for more centuries and in some cases even to this day. But maybe it had been neglected, maybe there was a lack of material and people to keep this great wall in good shape in all places to defend the city. You should not forget that the city had developed further to the east while parts of the western Formerly Roman settlement structures were abandoned for agriculture. And don't forget the Vikings weren't just anyone after all. They had known how to breach city walls for almost a century through numerous raids. They were also familiar with siege techniques. Cologne was not the first former Roman city to be sacked by the Vikings in 881, nor would it be the last. Once again, however, the people of Cologne would not allow their walls to be so easily breached. They quickly repaired the walls after the raid. When the Vikings passed Cologne again on their way back home to Friesland after the sack of Trier in 882, this time the Vikings were unable to overcome the walls and sack Cologne, unlike the city of Bonn in the south, which was raided again according to written sources. for the people of cologne the looting of their city was a deep trauma firmly rooted in the christian faith the common people and clergy of the time saw the viking raid as god's punishment for their sinful behavior that the attackers were non-christians and pagans naturally fed this belief How exactly the city population reacted to the attack besides the expected like terror and fear is of course not known. Here we can also only fall back on the sources that are still available from this time. Thus we know from Archbishop Gunther's successor, Archbishop Widibert, that he already suspected a danger from the Vikings in the years before the attack on the city. For this very reason, Widibert was unable and didn't want to travel to Rome to receive the pallium by the Pope after he was elected in the year 870. If you don't remember what a pallium is, you should listen to the previous episode again. Pope John VIII in Rome had not been well disposed towards Widibert at first, first anyway, since the former Archbishop Gunther, who had actually been deposed by him, or his predecessor, so to speak, had helped Willibert to obtain the office. I mean, Gunther helped Willibert to obtain the office. But according to the opinion of the Pope, it would have been incumbent on him, the Pope, to call the office of the Archbishop of Cologne at all again into being. The question of who would appoint a bishop, where was to remain a point of contention between the Pope, Emperor, and Kings, as well as the local clergy and nobility for a long time to come. But in this case, the Pope relented. In 875, Widibert received the pallium from Rome by mail. When the Vikings then really started to attack the Rhineland, the news of this probably rushed quickly up the Rhine. Thus, really better, most of the Cologne clergy, together with many treasures and relics, escaped the Viking attack. They fled time to the city of Mainz, where the Vikings did not advance to. Again, it should be noted that long time listeners may be familiar with Mainz. It is the former Roman city of Mogonsiacum, which was once the capital of the Roman province of Upper Germania. Apparently, Willibert did not return to Cologne for years, even after the Vikings had left the Rhineland, but stayed at a safe distance. It was not until 885, four years after the raid, that he returned to Cologne with the high clergy and many treasures. But what had happened that Willibert decided to return suddenly in the year 885? In that year, the Viking Prince Godefried died in Friesland, on what is now the Dutch North Sea coast. Not voluntarily he died, of course. The man who had plundered the whole Rhineland, and also Cologne, was murdered at the hands of a Frankish nobleman who had him killed on the spot under the pretext of diplomatic negotiations. Well, a place in Valhalla would have been safe for him. With the death of Godefried, the rule of the Vikings in this region also quickly ended and Friesland once again became part of the East Frankish Empire, the later medieval German Empire. And the Rhineland can breathe a noticeable sigh of relief. Well, the Hungarians are coming, but that's another topic. Monasteries and churches were rebuilt. Among other things... The monastery and church of St. Cecilia were refounded by Willibert, the church in front of which, according to legend, Bishop Culibert once found the bell that can still be seen today in the Schnittke Museum. As early as 887, the first synod of the Cologne church province took place. Previous synods had mostly taken place throughout the Frankish kingdoms. So all the bishops who belonged to Charles the Great's empire or later to that of Lofer, Louis or anyone else met for a meeting. This synod, however, this time really only included those of the bishoprics that belonged to the Cologne church province. Thus, in 887, the bishops from Liège, Utrecht, Münster and Minden gathered in Cologne for the first time together with the Archbishop of Cologne as the leader of this synod, of course. The bishopric of Hamburg-Bremen did not take part in it. This bishopric had been separated from the ecclesiastical province of Cologne shortly before, as you learned. This synod passed six resolutions, which, however, largely only include the church structure and confirmations of several spiritual offices. Nevertheless, this first synod of the Cologne Church province shows the growing power of the Archbishopric of Cologne and also the awareness that power could be expanded in this way. The Viking Age was thus a short but intense phase for Cologne, which must have caused fear in the people of the time for a long time to come. Elsewhere, as I said, the impact by the Vikings was very significant in the long term. Normandy in northern France, as the name suggests, was ruled by Vikings in the name of the West Frankish kings. It was from there that later William the Conqueror would set out to conquer England in 1066. England itself had been largely influenced before that, by Scandinavian culture and way of life until that year of 1066. But places like Sicily and even Russia also received lasting impulses from the Vikings. The Viking Age lasted around roughly 300 years in Europe, from the plundering of the English monastery Lindisfarne in the year 793 to the conquest of England by William the Conqueror in the year 1066. At the end of this epoch, however, the Scandinavians, and thus also the Vikings in the various areas of the then-known world, had become Christians, settled down, and, above all, they had mostly mixed with the majority population their respective new regions where they settled down. And who knows, maybe there's some Viking blood in one or the other of us. For us in the Rhineland, however, the Vikings were just short visitors who simply wanted to plunder, and not a whole century-long epoch as, for example, in England. Exactly for this reason, the Viking Age in the Rhineland has, in my opinion, often been neglected in science but also in popular culture such as in films or series. I entered completely new territory with this topic. I wasn't really familiar with the Vikings until then. Yes, I am a historian and I don't always know everything. We are scientists and not encyclopedias. I have read up a lot on topics but far too much has been written on the Viking subject nor can it be compactly sifted through all that needs to be mentioned within three weeks. There are bound to be some historians among my audience. In some books I read that even in the year 862 the Vikings already plundered Cologne but I have not found any evidence for this nor does it fit into the overall narrative of the Viking raids in the Rhineland after all almost all the plundering in the Rhine-Moselle area only took place between the years 881 to 883 Why then would there have been a single viking raiding expedition all the way coming from Scandinavia only to attack Cologne in 862, leaving all other places on its way unscathed? That makes no sense for me. Maybe someone can enlighten me who knows more about that. However, the viking raid was a wake-up call for the people of Cologne and they took notice. Cologne could not always rely on a king or an emperor That was often far away somewhere else. They, the people of Cologne, had to protect themselves effectively, a lesson that the people of Cologne would soon put into practice physically. Listen up, friends, this is big. The Viking invasion in the year 881 would be the last time for a foreign army to set foot within Cologne city walls for nearly 900 years. Yes, you heard me right. After that Viking raid, for more than 900 years, no foreign enemy army would set foot into the city of Cologne. How exactly the people of Cologne managed to do that? Well, we'll we'll get through that when the time comes. So, so much for now in the next episode. We will deal with Cologne around the year 900. Even though the history of Cologne during this time is almost the same as the history of the church in Cologne, I will try to include other aspects in the next episode. The time around 900 is an exciting time in the Rhineland. I look forward to hearing you all again next time. Many, many thanks and as always, before I go, recommend me further, rate me on iTunes or is it now Apple Podcast, doesn't hurt you and recommend me further, this is really the best advertisement you can do and if you want to support my podcast in even more greater ways, well check out my Linktree link that I have in the show notes. Thank you very much and as always, auf Wiedersehen.